Cool. Well, good evening, everybody. I hope you're all well. Um, as Alice just said, my name's Richard, um, and I'm training to be a vicar over in Durham. Um, I'm placed here just to get a little bit of an idea of what church-based ministry is like. It's great to be with you this evening. Now, I'm doing a couple of firsts this evening. The first one is I'm trying to use a clicker for my slides, so we'll see how that goes. And the second one is using one of these, I don't know what the technical name is, I call it a Britney mic, but I don't know what the actual name is. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Hopefully it'll all go well. Um, and so the passage I've got this evening is Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. So there we go. Um, so if you're able to get that uh, in your Bibles in front of you, that'd be great. Uh, the reason for that is just so um, you can basically check I'm not uh, making it up, um, which would be good. Um, and as you're finding it, I'll just read it to you. So you've got a bit, in that, bit of an idea of where we're going this evening. So it's Luke 18. Verses 9 to 14. And it says this, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So as I was thinking about and preparing uh, for this talk, I couldn't help but notice that um, a lot of the themes that are in this passage are similar to the themes um, of a lecture that I heard not that long ago. Now, I'm doing a degree, so my life is basically lectures at the moment. Um, but this lecture is actually one that... Um, well, they said it wasn't compulsory, but it basically was. Um, and it was a few weeks ago, it was called the Borderlands Lecture at Durham Uni. And the whole idea of it is that they basically get somebody fairly well known um, to come in and give a talk um, involving theology, but they try and bring it into conversation with other academic disciplines as well. And the person who came to do the talk um, a few weeks back was a guy called Martin Bashir. Now, Martin Bashir is the... Um, BBC's uh, religion editor. He's uh, most well known for some high profile interviews that he did a few years ago now with Princess Diana and with Michael Jackson. And it was really interesting. His talk was all about identity formation and the idea of um, how people today form and get their identity. And the reason why that lecture made me think of this passage and vice versa is because if you look uh, in verse 9 to some who are confident of their own righteousness there's a link there between this verse and what Martin Bashir was saying because Martin Bashir was basically saying this he was saying as he's traveled the world as he's visited different people in different places at different times he has noticed that the way that people uh, find identity for themselves is increasingly self-generated he was saying that more and more people are defining what's good, what's right, what is true, what works for them, entirely on their own, completely separate from anything external or outside. It's that whole idea that's saying, I'll do what I want that I think is right for me, and who are you to tell me anything else? I'll do me, and you do you. 
That's the idea that he was talking about. And it just struck me that this is kind of similar when this passage is talking about people who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. It's that similar idea. Now, I'll admit, when I first um, read the word righteousness, I had a bit of an idea um, of what it meant. I wasn't certain. Um, So I did what any good millennial would do in that situation, and I Googled it. And um, what I found when I Googled it in terms of righteousness was this. It said, particularly self-righteousness, having a belief, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. I'll say that again. Self-righteousness is this idea of having a belief, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. And there was an interesting point in this lecture with Martin Bashir where he was talking about all the different things that he'd seen, all the different examples that he'd come across. And in about 10, 15 minutes into the lecture, he just stopped and he turned to the audience And with this whole idea of people deciding for themselves what works, deciding for themselves what's good, he just turned to the audience and he said, does it seem like it's working to you? Now, the implied answer to that question was no, because if the answer was yes, it would have been a very short lecture. But the whole idea is that, well, no, it doesn't work. People deciding for themselves what works, just purely based on what he was saying is what makes them feel good. And you know when someone says something to you, and then it's, um, they say it, and you hadn't really thought about it before, but once they say it, you can't kind of unhear it or unsee it. And it's just kind of everywhere. I had a similar thing. So have a listen to um, this quote. This quote that I found um, was from the, the kind of open letter that I saw on social media as I was scrolling through. And it was an open letter from a university student. And they were just describing a bit of their experience. And this is what it said. It said, I think by most people's definition, I live a pretty good life. I'm outgoing, find it extremely easy to make new friends, commit to a lot of interesting hobbies and societies, do a lot of charity work, and quite okay at my course and have an offer for one of those competitive careers that everyone is seemingly obsessed over. You see, this person had noticed that actually, as time's gone on, people have, there's been some commonality in terms of um, the identities that people have forged and some key strands have come together. Things like achievement, things like helping the other, things like being good at what you do. And all those things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're good. But it goes further than that. And I think the, re- I, the reason why I think it goes further than that is because of what this post said next. So remember, they've got everything going for them. That being said, I'm extremely unhappy, is the very next sentence in what they say. That being said, I'm extremely unhappy. My family is constantly fighting over the latest uh, series of arguments, and I find it incredibly isolating. Although I do not have a lot of friends, although I do have a lot of friends who would be happy giving support and listening to my problems, I find it extremely hard to open up to someone I'm not dating. That means when there's a trough, it leaves me wanting a partner for the sake of it, which I find disgusting. If you Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'll see that relationship fulfillment takes precedent to self-actualization. By skipping this, I feel in complete disarray. I have no doubt that the people I volunteer for live far, far happier lives than I do. So actually, there's something about focusing on self that doesn't bring happiness. Just being able to tick all the boxes and say, yeah, I've got this, I've got that, I've got the other. This would seem to say that that doesn't bring happiness in and of itself. 
there was another incident where I couldn't unhear what Martin Bashir had said. And I was watching um, Have I Got News For You the other day, um, BBC panel show um, that seems to be getting worse over time, <laughs> but uh, it's still all right at the moment. Um, and one of the um, kind of items that they did was a bit on Lewis Hamilton. Now Lewis Hamilton, F1 driver, won the um, world championship in his second um, competitive season, uh, worth so many millions of pounds um, that it's outrageous. Um, he's got all the latest stuff, all the latest cars, all the latest clothes, always with a pretty girl on his arm. Listen to this quote from Lewis Hamilton, who seemingly, in terms of the whole um, deciding for ourselves what works and what the world would say works, listen to his quote in relation to that. He says, it's taken me 32 years to understand why the impact, it's taken me 32 years to understand the impact I'm having on the world and I'm figuring out daily what I can do to play a better part. I want my life to mean something. And honestly, up until now, my life's had no meaning. So focusing on self doesn't bring happiness. And it would seem that focusing on self in and of itself doesn't bring meaning. And so then we get to our passage this evening. And I think that from our passage, ultimately, more than either of these two things, we see that focusing on self doesn't bring salvation. Now, you could argue that I'm presenting a very one-sided view of this worldview. And to a certain extent, I think I am. But I think all of that holds true. Identifying for yourself what's good. Identifying for yourself what works. Saying, I'll do me and you can't tell me any different. I don't think it achieves any of those three things. So if that doesn't do it, what does. In order to do that, it's probably about time that we looked at the passage that I read at the start. And so we start um, with verse 10. And we're looking at the Pharisee. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the first thing to notice is where they're going. They're going to the temple. Now, Christians today talk about God being present with them all the time. And that, you know, the spirit is with us, lives inside of us. And so um, we are the temple now. But at this time, the temple is where God's presence dwell. So in order to be in God's presence, people went to the temple. So whatever happens in this story is happening in the presence of God. So they're talking about prayer and that's what they're going to do. But whatever happens in this story is happening in the presence of God. And it's important to remember that we are in the presence of God as we're listening to this story. And the thing to remember about Pharisees is that they were religious leaders at the time. They were looked up to. People aspired to be like them. They did their best to understand the law and teach it to people. Most of them live fairly honest and upright lives. So actually, sometimes Pharisees can be presented a bit like kind of pantomime villains. You know, we kind of boo and hiss whenever they appear. It's not always as simple as that. Actually, a lot of them were trying to live according to the law and teach other people to do the same. And so when people heard this story being told, they would have heard Pharisee and thought, right, this is the good guy. This is the one we need to be like. And so what does a Pharisee do? Well, the Pharisee starts listing off his credentials. He says he doesn't rob. He says he doesn't do evil. 
He says he's not an adulterer. He says he fasts. And he says that he gives. That's really good, isn't it? All that stuff's good. It's good to fast. It's good to give. It's good to not rob stuff. It's good to not do evil. That's good. Yet, the Pharisee in this story is presented as the person we're not to be like. So why is that? The reason why is in verse 14. It says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. There is nothing wrong with that stuff until the Pharisee starts using that stuff as his identity. The Pharisee comes into the presence of God and starts reeling off his credentials, saying, I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other. Look how good I am. This reads as if the Pharisee's come to God and is trying to convince God that it's him that needs the Pharisee, not the other way around. And that's a problem. The reason why that is a problem is because if we come to God and we try to just list off all the good stuff that we've done, God will see that. And God loves it when we do good things. But if we come into the presence of God and try to justify ourselves based on what we do, God will see the good stuff, but he'll also see the bad stuff. And we've all got that. We've all got bad stuff as well as the good. And the reason why that is an issue is because God is perfect. He is holy. He is just. In comparison to perfection, we're really not. I know I'm certainly not. So that leaves us with a gap that we on our own can't fill. We can't bridge that gap on our own. We can't do it. That's why the whole self thing doesn't work because it puts us in a situation where we can only get so far and then we can go no further. So the Pharisee has come into the presence of God and tried to basically earn his way into his presence. He's tried to say, God, look how good I am. And he's done lots of good stuff. We've seen that. But if we try to earn our way into God's presence, we will always fall short because he is perfect and we're not. And that can feel like an affront sometimes. But I don't think I've ever met anybody in conversation who would claim that they've never done anything wrong. So if we try to earn our way into God's presence, if we try and earn our way to salvation, it just doesn't work. So then we get to the tax collector. And if the Pharisee was the guy who the audience would have heard and thought, yes, this is the guy we need to be like. The tax collector is the guy who, when they heard about him, they would have thought, he's the last person we need to be. The reason why is that tax collector, as the name suggests, collected taxes. Um, and the way that the tax collectors did that was they worked for the Roman authorities. And so what they would do is they would basically just extort as much money for taxes out of people as they could because they would give a certain amount to the authorities and then they just kind of siphon off the top whatever's left for themselves. So they would get rich to the extent that they could extort other people. So that meant that people thought of them as greedy, thought of them as selfish, thought of them as completely out for themselves and not interested in anybody else. So you can see why when the tax collectors mentioned in this story, the audience at the time would have thought he's the last person we need to be. But look at what the tax collector does. 
the tax collector stands at a distance, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then later on in the passage, it says that it's this man that went home justified before God rather than the Pharisee. So the question is, why the tax collector if not the Pharisee? The tax collector comes in and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, that is actually quite a big admission of the fact that the tax collector thinks that God is pretty, pretty big, that God is pretty great. Because if he didn't think that, why would he ask him to forgive him? So there's an admission in here, isn't there, that God must be pretty big, must be pretty great if the tax collector is going to ask him to do this. The tax collector comes in and doesn't even think for one moment to start with himself. He comes into the presence of God and focuses on him. He comes into the presence of God and focuses on him. Now the question is, why is this God that the tax collector has come into the presence of so great? Why is he? In order to fully understand, understand that, we need to kind of zoom out for a moment from the kind of immediate story that we're talking about into kind of the broader storyline of Luke. So the storyline of Jesus' life basically happened in three sections. It happened in his ministry in Galilee, first off. Then it moved into the journey to Jerusalem. And then it finished up with once he got to Jerusalem. Now, this story happens in the journey to Jerusalem part of his life. Why is he journeying to Jerusalem? He is journeying to Jerusalem to die on a cross. Because do you remember that gap I was talking about? The gap between the perfection of God and the imperfection of us. And that gap that we can't, we can't bridge on our own. The thing about Jesus is, God on earth, he was perfect. He lived the life that we could never live. And he came to earth and he died on a cross that we should have died on to bridge that gap. All of a sudden, the gap through the death of Jesus is gone. It says uh, when Jesus died on the cross that the veil is torn in two. That veil is a veil that's in front of where God's presence dwelt in the temple. It got torn apart as Jesus died on the cross. The reason why is that the separation between God and man is done as he died. And so what that means is we can have access to God now. We can have a relationship with him. And how do we get that relationship with him? By doing what the tax collector did. We come into the presence of God and say, God, we can't do it on our own. We need you. The whole self thing doesn't work. We don't come into the presence of God and focus on us. We come into the presence of God and focus on him because in him is life. In him is forgiveness. In him is restoration from all the things that have previously bound us. In him is relationship and it's the best relationship 
that you could ever be in. And the reason why it's the best relationship that you could ever be in is because that self thing that I was talking about just keeps you in the now. It gives you nothing to focus on in the future, whereas relationship with God says that I see the difficulties on earth right now, but I'm going to give you something in the future, heaven, to fix your eyes on. So even when things are hard now, you've got hope ahead of you that you can keep on walking towards. At this church, we say that following Jesus is the best thing that you can do, and I think it's absolutely right. There is no better thing that you can do with your life than give it to Jesus. He loves you before you do anything. He loves you before you lift a finger. He died for you before you do anything, and no other religion does that. No other worldview does that. Every other worldview says, if you do X, Y, and Z, you might or might not get to wherever it is that that worldview claims that you will go. Christianity is the only one that says that you are loved first. What you do matters, but it matters as a thank you and a response because of all that God has done for you in the first place. That's the difference. It's not about us. It's all about him. And so what do we do about that? How do we respond to that? It strikes me that if you're a non-Christian here today, um, there's a question of, you've heard all that, well, some of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. There's always more to find out about him, but you've heard the crux of the story that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins to bring you into relationship with him and eternal life the question is is today the day where you're wanting to put your trust in him and that is a genuine question where the answer might be no not today and that's fine but for some of you it might be that today is the day when you say actually yes i do if that's you, that's amazing. Um, when, when we respond um, to this talk, once I've finished um, chatting, there will be a chance to come and get prayer ministry. If that's you, it'd be great if you came and got prayer from one of the team. We would love to pray for you. Equally, if you're someone um, for whom that sounds a bit much, uh, Ben mentioned the cards that we've got in the pews where you fill in your details. There's a box on there that says, Something like, I want to start following Jesus today. I think that's the wording. Um, if you just tick that box, that just lets us know that you've made that decision, you've made that commitment, and we can then follow up with that um, in perhaps a less kind of public way. But if you're someone who wants to start following Jesus today, I just want to reiterate what I said in that I happen to think it's the best thing that you can do. If you're a Christian here today, it's quite easy to treat this passage as a duality. It's like, well, if I'm not one, I must be the other. So if I'm not the Pharisee who bases everything on me, I must be the tax collector who just gives it all to Jesus and never has to worry about it. My observation of life is, and I'm talking about my life, is that that isn't how it works. At the same time, we are capable of saying, Jesus, I recognize that I need to um, surrender everything to you except for this bit. I quite want to keep this. It might be that you say, Jesus, I need to surrender everything to you, but actually I've got quite a lot of money and I quite like keeping that, so that, bit, that bit's off limits. 
but you can have the rest. Or it might be um, that you say, Jesus, I need to surrender everything to you, but actually, if you see how popular I am, I'll keep that bit. You might say, Jesus, I need to surrender everything to you, but my uni course or my career is going so well, and so I'll keep hold of that. All that stuff isn't bad in and of itself. But if you define yourself by that, instead of what Jesus has done for you, that's an issue. So if you're a non-Christian here today, do you want to start following Jesus today? And if you're a Christian here today, which areas of your walk with Jesus are you not finding your identity in him, but finding it in other places instead? Shall we pray?